this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to the book of Revelation. As we end the series, we turn to the end of the Bible. Revelation, chapter 7. And we're going to read verses 9 and 10. Just, those, just a couple of verses. Familiar verses, actually. Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's uh, come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come each Sunday, our hope is not just to have a good feeling from the, the worship and the music or, or, or to hear a, a good sermon, but actually to encounter you. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to meet with us and give us the kind of encounter this morning that would put everything else in perspective and put everything else in its, in its place. So, Father, we pray we'd, we'd meet with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is uh, James Buck. Uh, a couple of months ago, a team went uh, from, from TBC over to Rwanda um, and met James Buck at a pastor's conference there, uh, there in, in Kigali. James is not actually from Rwanda. He's from the Sudan. And as uh, many of you know, the Sudan has, has been plagued with violence for, for many years now. Um, in fact, just recently, they've... Uh, recently divided the Sudan into two different nations, right, the two nation states, northern and southern Sudan, in an attempt to try to curb some of the, the bloodshed. But it's still plagued with, with violence and, and tribal warfare. And, and one of the groups that has been terrorizing the southern Sudanese for, for coming on for decades now is known as the Lord's Resistance Army. Sick name, isn't it, as they go around terrorizing people. The Lord's Resistance Army. And, and one of the things they're known for, amongst other things, is, is for kidnapping children, um, often orphaning them first, killing their parents, taking these kids, and then turning them into child soldiers, forcing them to take part in the, in the bloodshed and the violence. At one point in time, James Buck was himself a prime target for this sort of thing. He was orphaned at the age of 14. And as a 14-year-old boy, he found himself alone in the world, surrounded, uh, just lost in, in the crowds of people that surrounded him in the, in the refugee camps fighting for their own survival. Needless to say, he, he said he was becoming more and more angry, bitter, and, and uh, deeply wounded by the loss and devastation, not just to himself, but, but to the, the, the so many around him, the, the human suffering that he saw everywhere. But then a glimmer of hope. There's this flicker of light in the darkness. UNICEF was running this, this uh, program, and I think they're still running it now, where, where they would take these, these kids who had been orphaned, and, and uh, they'd take them from the Sudan out of the refugee camps, and they would place them with families here in America and in Western Europe. And, and James Bach says that, that for him, his idea of heaven on earth was America. If, he could get his, if his name got on this list, which it was now, and, and his name was called, he'd have his ticket to heaven. Or at least his ticket out of what many have called, you know, dubbed hell on earth. Right? Well, time goes on, and he's waiting for his number to be called. And then while he's waiting, uh, this preacher comes to the refugee camps, and he's he's speaking about love. And James says he, he really didn't really want to hear about love. 
Uh, he, he didn't even believe in love, not after everything he'd seen and everything he'd been through. But someone drags him along to hear this preacher. And, and, and that night, for the first time, not, not, not like some of us, for, you know, me, for the umpteenth time, but for the first time, he hears about a sacrificial love and, and a self-giving love and a self-giving God who gave so much of himself as he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And right there and then, that night, in the refugee camp, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord, as his King, as his Savior. Well, time goes on. He was 14 when he went into the refugee camp. He was 17 when the good news came that someone that had, there was a family, that, the, that his name had been Paul, and there was a family in America that the, the UNICEF caseworker came to give him the good news and said, There's a family in America ready to, to, to take you in, foster you in. And he hands him his papers, and as he stood there with his papers in his hands, you know, he, he, he just. He felt so grateful to God for giving him an opportunity for a very, very different kind of life. But as he stood there with those papers in his hands, he also knew in that same moment that he had a choice. He had a choice. Yeah, there was another option. And the other option was that he could stay. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I would not have seen an option. Would you, would you have seen a choice? I would not have seen a choice. Okay, just being but he saw a choice. And he made a choice, and he chose to stay. And, and, and the, this has not happened, but this is unprecedented. And so the, this, this caseworker, the, the UNICEF caseworker, is thinking, what, what are you doing? You've been waiting from the age of 14, you're now 17 years have gone by. This is the opportunity, your moment. But if you pass this up, if you stay here, you are more than likely going to die like so many other young men your age. And you know how this 17-year-old boy responds? He says, he says, if I die, what's one more dead Sudanese lost boy? He says, you think they're going to notice in America where those foster families are? You think they're going to notice in Western Europe? They, hey, they're not even going to notice here in this, in this camp, here in the Sudan. No one's going to notice. But if I stay and God lets me live, it could make a difference for all of these people. And so he does the unthinkable. He hands his papers back and he says, you, you give that to someone else. Someone else can have my place and live that life. I've got to stay. Now, there's more to that story, and, and uh, it's just an incredible story. So we, I'm going to come back to that in a moment because, you know, you have to know what happens next, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll come back to that in a minute. But, but for right now, I just want to ask this question, which we're all asking right now in our heads, so I might as well ask it out loud. Who does that? Right? Who, who does that? Who does that? Who gives up? Who gives up their get-out-of-hell-on-earth-free card? Right, who does that? Who, what would drive someone to do that? Because if it was me, here's what I would be doing. I would be on my knees and I'd be saying, thank you, God, for being a light unto my path, like the psalmist says. See, I could quote scripture on this. right? And I'd be saying, thank you, God, that you've given me a future and a hope, like Jeremiah says. I could misquote scripture on this. right? And, and, and there would be a celebration of everything that God had done for me. Because of what God had done, think about it. I would get to live another year. I would not be forced to become a child soldier, to kill or be killed and die a violent, bloody death. I would get to live in America. Because of what God had done, who knows? I might get to live long enough to find a wife, have, have a family, get a job, earn a living, buy a house, settle down, have running water, right? Okay. <laughs> Maybe not, right? So who... <laughs> Who knows? You know, all, all because of what God had done. But instead, he hands his papers back and he chooses to stay. Who does that? What drives someone to do that? Hugely influential in James Buck's decision to stay in the Sudan. As a 17, vulnerable 17-year-old 17 kid, mind you, in, in a refugee camp, 
hugely influential in his decision to stay in the Sudan was his perspective on heaven and eternity. Heaven and eternity, that's the doctrine that we're looking at this morning. As we come to the, the close of our, our series on the great doctrines of the faith, right? We're, we're looking at the great doctrines of the faith. It's, it's appropriate, isn't it, that we end up looking at how things end up, right? That how do things end up? What happens next? What, what's heaven going to be like? What, what, is, what, what does eternity hold for us? Heaven and eternity, hugely influential in James Buck's perspective and, and his decision to stay in the Sudan. James Buck had what you and I might call the heavenly eternal perspective. Ah yes, the, the heavenly eternal perspective, we, we nod in agreement because you know we, we all know what that means. Right? <laughs> actually, it's, it's kind of hard to nod in agreement, isn't it, when we're treading water because we're actually in debt up to our eyeballs and, and we're, we're actually contemplating getting into even more debt because we're contemplating buying even more stuff that we can't really afford but it'd be really nice to have. The eternal heavenly perspective. Difficult to talk about when I'm shuffling more stuff into my storage units because there's no more room in the house for my excess. And in the light of eternity, in the light of eternity, we prepare for that, or at least I prepare for that great and terrible day that scripture always talks about, otherwise known to us as retirement, right? And, and, and so, so it's difficult. And, and it's not saying that all of this stuff is always bad all of the time. But look, our involvement in these things uh, and, and, and our involvement in the certain types of consumerism and, and materialism and excess and more excess and debt and even more debt and more excess, our involvement in these things makes it difficult for me to stand up here and, and pound on heart say to you, I have the same eternal uh, sort of heavenly perspective as a James Buck has an eternal heavenly perspective. I, I can't say that. I because, and I know I don't, and I tell you why, because I would not have made that decision that he made. Maybe some of you are sitting there going, huh, he's a spiritual midget. He, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's a spiritual wimp. What, what's that about? But, well, that's good. I'm glad if you've got that, because some brave souls here would have made the decision he made. I'm just saying, I don't think I would have done. So I can't. And here's the difficult thing about having a heavenly eternal perspective, isn't it? I mean, don't, don't you think that the really difficult thing is this, right? Is that sometimes heaven and eternity, and, and see if you agree with this, sometimes it just seems so far away. Right, and, and and it's difficult. I find it very difficult to to exchange uh, phys- solid physical realities, right, with ethereal spiritual possibilities, right? Because you know I I can grab a hold of here and now, right, but sometimes I can't even wrap my mind around there and forever, right? And, and it's not just that I can't see it or feel it and touch it. It's not just that. It's that my mind won't even go there. I can't even imagine it. I, I don't even know. I, I can't think of. I don't even know what I'm meant to be thinking about, right? And so heaven seems so far away from earth, and eternity seems so far away from now, so vaguely and loosely connected to now that, that there are some pastors uh, up, in, up in Dallas, the, the village church, uh, Matt Chandler, what a wonderful ministry he's got going on up there. But he's publicly confessed to his congregation. Uh, as if one or two elders here at, at uh, TBC have also publicly, and I'm glad these, guys, these leaders in the church have confessed this because it makes me feel a bit better about some of my thinking on this sometimes. And let's see if this is you, right? Let's see if this is you. Some of us here are terrified of going to heaven, right? And we're terrified of going to heaven. That sounds ridiculous, right? We're terrified of going to heaven because we're terrified of being bored out of our minds. You know, I, I guess we've all been traumatized at some point in time by the, those kind of c- cartoon pictures of heaven. You know the ones I mean where you, the, the, the disembodied spirit suddenly sprouts wings, right? And then floats up to a, uh, their individual clouds and, and plays the harp forever. You know, you know the one I mean. Now, no one takes that literally, at least I hope not. But something like that, along with a lot of vagueness, is driving our perspective on heaven and eternity. You know, when I hear stories like this, 
And sometimes when I get the privilege, I've had the privilege of sitting down with one or two people like this and hearing their stories and talking to them. And I walk away from, I walk away inspired. And I walk away thinking, I wish I had that eternal heavenly perspective on life. Don't, don't you wish that? Do you, ever, do you ever look at life and say, I wish I had that eternal heavenly perspective on life like a James Bach does. I, I, w- I wish I had that. Well, but perhaps if we want to have something even close to that, approximating that, perhaps what we need, first of all, is a different perspective on heaven and eternity. Right? Does that make sense? If we, if we want to have that eternal heavenly perspective on life, maybe what we need, first of all, is a different perspective on heaven and eternity. Something other than the heaven and eternity of popular imagination and folk religion, which, which removes it so far away from everything else. Thankfully, Scripture gives us a very, very different picture of heaven and uh, eternity. It gives us a picture of heaven and eternity that is, not only, that is not only connected to now, but in some sense is made up of the stuff of now. Now is woven into the fabric of God's eternity. Does that, he, scripture gives us a picture of, of a heaven and eternity which is not only connected to now, but is, is in some sense made up of the stuff of now. Now is woven into God's forever. It's woven into God's eternity. And, and that's what I want to look at this morning. I want, to, I want to look at two ways that Scripture establishes this link between now and forever, between heaven and earth, between now and eternity. Now, I know Scripture probably does this in like, what, 101 different ways, 1,001 different but, but I, I just want to look at, we're going to keep it simple this morning. We're just going to look at two different ways, okay? Two ways that Scripture ties these things together and never lets them drift too far apart. The, the first way that Scripture does this, that establishes this link between heaven and earth, between now and eternity, okay, we did the first way. We're looking at two ways, just the first way. Way number one. It, it's actually uh, expressed very well in James Buck's initial response to that UNICEF caseworker. Do you remember what he said? The UNICEF caseworker says, you stay here, you're going to die. And James Butt responds, he says, he says, if I die, I die. But if I stay and God lets me live, it could make a difference for all of these people. See, James Butt knew that if he, if he went to America, he, he could easily talk about God's goodness and God's faithfulness and God's love. His question was, how do these people, these people, get to talk about God's goodness? and faithfulness and love, right? If he came to the States, right, it'll be easy for him to talk about God's light, right? God's light, God's provision, generosity, God's, God's hope. His question was, how do these people who he's leaving behind in utter darkness, impoverished, in poverty, in, 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 uh, in hopelessness, in despair, some of them, how do words like light and, and hope and provision and generosity, how do those words enter into their vocabulary? It would be part of his. How, how does it become part of theirs? Because he looked around him and he thought, surely heaven is going to be made up of these people too. See, one of the ways that Scripture establishes a link between heaven and earth, between now and eternity, is with a focus on the people of God. A focus on the people, the people of God. People is the plural of person. Special subject this morning, the bleeding obvious. Okay, I'm just, n- nothing particularly profound here. They're just stating the obvious. Okay, people, the plural of person. God is never just calling out individuals for himself. He is calling out a people for himself. So that while popular imagination and folk religion has tended to overemphasize, and I'm not saying it's an entirely wrong emphasis at all, I'm just saying it's, there's been an overemphasis on the eternal destiny of the individual. Scripture talks about the eternal destiny of the individuals, but it talks about it in the context of the eternal destiny of God's people. God is not just calling out individuals for himself. God is calling out a people for himself. God is calling a people to himself and to each other. To each other. 
In, in fact, in some sense, it, it's only by becoming a member of God's covenant people, people, right? It's only by being included in the covenant people of God that individuals can talk sensibly about having an eternal destiny with God. So here's how it plays out in Scripture, right? Let's take a couple of examples. God calls Abraham. There you go. Unique individual. God's called an individual. But God's call on Abraham's life immediately involves him with a concern for the people of God. God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. That nation is the people of Israel, right? The God's people. And I'm going to make, it's more than that, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations that there are other of my people outside of Israel. There are, these are, there are more of my people. God's call on Abraham's life immediately and simultaneously involves him with a concern for the people of God. Jesus calls his disciples, he calls Peter, he calls James, he calls individuals like John, he calls individuals like Thomas, they're unique individuals, right? I mean, you smile when you hear these names, you know all of these characters that you've read, they're familiar, they're very different people, right? But God calls them to himself, Christ calls them to each other, to each other. And Christ's call on his disciples' life immediately and simultaneously involves them in a concern for the people, for the people of God. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of men. Look, and it happens immediately, right? It's, imme- it's straight away. There's, there's no time lag. There's no gap, right? right? He, doesn't, he doesn't say, well, let's talk about you first, Peter. We're going to talk about all you and all about you. And then maybe, maybe we can bring up this, this we'll talk about the rest, the other people. Right? He, he doesn't say, Peter, we're going to get you over your depression first, and James will get you over your anger issues, and John wants you to get over your daddy wound, and, and, and Abraham and Sarah, if you can just get your marriage together, then, maybe then we can start even thinking or talking about other people. He doesn't do that. Scripture, right up front, God holds up his concern for his people, front and center, regardless of any personal wounds I may have, regardless of any sickness I may have, irrespective of any healing I may receive or the healing that sometimes never comes, contained in the call to follow Christ is a, is a call to pursue the people, the people of God. Regardless of any sickness and healing and dying that I may do. And don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that God doesn't care about this stuff. But let's, let's be very explicit here. God loves you and cares for you more than anyone on the face of this earth. There is no one who even comes close to touching that. They don't even come close. And if there is going to be any healing in your life, maybe there is some wound from your past that makes you walk with a limp. Maybe there's a sickness in your body that you're fighting right now. Maybe there's a relationship right now that needs to be put back together. If there is going to be any healing in your life, any restoration, it's going, to, where is it going to, it's going to come from the generous and healing hands of God. Where else is it going to come from, right? It's going to come from the healing hands of God. But let's, let's remind ourselves of what happens next. You know what happens once I get over one wound? It doesn't make me invincible. Someone else can do something and they can wound me deeply again. They can hurt me, maybe a different kind of pain, but it can be profoundly painful. You know what happens when I get over one sickness? What happens next? You know what happens next, right? I get sick again. And then I get healed of another sickness and I get sick again. Then I get healed of another sickness. And I keep doing that until one of those sicknesses takes me. You know, we just keep doing this until one day we drop dead, right? So while I'm always tempted, I'm always tempted. I mean, I'm talking about me personally here. I'm always tempted to say, what about me? What about my time? When's it my turn? What about my healing, my provision, my pain, my wounds, my, my day? When's it, when, what about me? God is always saying, what about my people? What about my people? 
What about my people? And James Bark, of all people, right? Don't you think that of, of all people, he had the right, if anyone had the right, to say, when's it my turn? Right? When, when, what about my day? Those people in America, they seem to have their day every day. What, what about those people in Western Europe? They get their day. What about those people in, in, who are leaving the Sudan and going there? What, when's it going to be my turn? My wounds, my loss, my devastation, my healing, my pain, my provision, my hope. And God says, but what about my people? What about my people? And James Bart looks around him and he says, if I stay and I live, it could make a difference for all of these people. You want to know what happens next? Here's what happens next. James Bark stays, and, and shortly after making that decision, that can't have been an impossible decision to stay. Shortly after making that decision, he, he, he discovers his parents are still alive. He, he thought he'd been orphaned for years, and, and now his, he discovers his parents are alive. So he's reunited with his parents. And he pulled the, one of the first things he does, he pulls out his Bible, and he turns to John chapter 3, verse 16. And, uh, and, you know, you and I know this off by heart. If you don't, you can Google it, right? We've got it on our T-shirts and our mugs, right? But they never heard this before. And, and they're stunned. But they're not stunned by the verse. They're, 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 like, they're stunned by the fact that they're like, you can read? <laughs> when, 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 they, when they last saw him, he was an illiterate 14-year-old boy. And, and about six months into his walk with Jesus, he, he'd learned to read. And so now he's reading. And so that, that once they get over that shock, then, then, then they're hit by the good news of Jesus Christ. And they come to faith. His hometown uh, was a hometown of about uh, 3,000 people. Now there is a church there of about 3,000 people. And one, and one, one day they decide, well, what are we going to do with all these animist objects, you know, and this witchcraft and, and all of this stuff? We don't need these idols. What, what is this? We don't live by that story anymore. We've got a completely different story we're living by. Well, let's get rid of this junk. And so what do we do with it? Well, let's have a big fire. So they have this huge bonfire, and they light a match, and they throw it on there, and this thing goes up in flames. And it can be seen for miles around that night. I mean, there are outlying towns and villages which can see this thing burning in the distance, and they're wondering, what's, what's going on over there? Right? And so what they do is they, they send out spies to go and check out this fire, and the spies return to their villages and towns, and they're like, uh, you want to stay away from these people because they're, they're about to incur the wrath of the spirits on them. They're turning their backs on it. They're burning that stuff. This is bad stuff. But eventually, the gospel spreads to those outlying towns, those outlying villages. And now this James Buck, he heads up, a ch- a leads a, a chain of churches in that area of about twelve to 13,000 people. If I stay, if I die, what, what difference does it make? But if I stay and God lets me live, it could make a difference to all of these people. He looked around him and he thought, surely heaven is going to be made up of these people too. And of course he was right, because in our reading this morning, John says, he says, <laughs> after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God's forever is made up of the stuff of now. Now is woven into the fabric of God's eternity. Which is why you can turn to the person sitting next to you, and if you know them well, if you know them well, you can, you can hold their hand, you can grab their arm. You, you can jab them in the ribs and, and tap them annoyingly on the shoulder, right? Don't do that if you don't know them well. They, they're not going to appreciate that, right? But, but here's the thing. You can almost reach out and see it and touch it and feel it, okay? okay it, it, you see, heaven's going to be, look around you, heaven's going to be made up of these people too, okay? Which is why Jesus can say, the kingdom of heaven kingdom of God 
is in your midst. Okay, look, there's a second way, and I'm going to be briefer on this, okay, I promise. There's a second, well, there's two ways. We're going to look at two ways this morning, right? There's more than two ways, but we're just looking at two this morning to keep things simple. The second way that Scripture establishes this link between heaven and earth, between now and eternity, right, it is, is, by, is by lending a, a sense of dignity or, or a, a legitimacy, giving a legitimacy to our sense of oughtness. It gives legitimacy to our sense of oughtness. Everybody's got a sense of oughtness. Uh, and some of you are thinking, I don't have a sense of oughtness. I don't even know what you're talking What's the sense of oughtness? Well, let me explain. Right? So we've all had those moments in life where we've looked at life, at some, some moment in life, and everything in us cries out, it ought not to be that way. It ought, not to, it ought to be this way. You know, maybe it was when you, you sat in front of the TV and, and, you're, and you're seeing those adverts and they're showing the starving children and, and you look down at your bag of potato chips and, and, and you're, you, you know there's enough food in the world to feed the world five times over and you're, you're like, they ought not to be starving. They ought to be fed. Right? Maybe one of the first times you ever felt this and you felt it powerfully was when you were a very small child. Right? And, and, and you saw your family disintegrating. You saw your parents' marriage break up and disintegrate and fall in and then divorce and went their separate ways. And everything in you back then cried out, no, it ought not to be this way. It ought to be that way. And even now when you look back, you're like, no, they ought to have fought for their marriage and they ought to have stayed together. Everyone has this sense of honor. Sometimes, sometimes it's when, when you have one of those days where everything is just so. And, and, and you look at that, that snapshot in life. Or you see someone, maybe you see someone doing something kind, something loving, something gracious, something overly generous, and you look at that, and you say, you take that snapshot of life, and you're like, that is how things ought to be. That is how things ought to be. Everyone's got a sense of oughtness. This is a universal human experience. But, but here's, here's, the, here's the thing, is that it is unique. It is unique to the Christian worldview. It is unique to the biblical narrative that it, that it provides a legitimacy to that sense of oughtness. No other worldview does that. And the way that scripture does this is, is by surrounding that oughtness, that ought to be, with a meant to be and a going to be. It, it brackets our sense of ought to be with a meant to be and a going to be. And, here, and here's how it does it. Right, right in the very beginning of the Bible, in, in, in Genesis chapter 1, we, we have this, this story of creation. Right? You're all familiar with that. And God separate, created the heavens and the earth. He separates light from darkness, the sea from the sky, the land from the sea. Then there's the animals, the, the, the birds, the fish. I'm probably doing this all in the wrong order, so just as well it wasn't. You know. So, 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 he's, so he's, he's, he's great. And after every day, but after every day, he, he, he's saying, it says, and God saw that all that he'd made, and it was good. And on the second day, it says, and God saw that it was good. And on the third day, it says, and God saw that it was good. And it just keeps repeating this until we get right to the, the end of that chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. It says, and God saw all that he has made, and it was very good. This is the author's intention. This is the creator's intention. This is what the creator meant by creation. This is what the creator meant for his creation. This is the meant to be. Scripture gives us that meant to be. On one side of our ought to be, there's that meant to be. But on the other side of our ought to be, there is a going to be. And here's how Scripture gives us the going to be. And again, it comes in the form of a creation story. You have noticed that the Bible is bracketed by two creation stories, one right at the beginning, one right at the end. Penultimate chapter of the Bible says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is a new creation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Um, 
No time to go into the symbolism of all that, but uh, we'll do that another time. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There is a going to be. God, there is a meant to be and a going to be. And this gives legitimacy to our ought to be. And I I want us to just grasp how unique this is. No other worldview, no other narrative gives this. I just want to take a couple of examples. Look at, look at the modern materialistic, uh, atheistic view of, of things. Uh, it, it says that our world, everything, came out of nowhere and nothingness and out of the chaos and nothingness without any guidance or sense. Through a series of flukes, blind flukes, our world emerges. So that's the theory of origins, right, from, from the materialistic point of view. And, and the only thing that it can offer is, is what science offers, of course, which says that the, one day the sun, our sun, is going to expand and become a red giant. It's going to fry the earth, and the earth will become, uh, the sun will shrink, then after that become a dying ember, and the earth will become this cold, dead rock floating through space. There is no meant to be, and there is no going to be, so there is no legitimacy to our universal human experience of ought to be. But you know, this isn't a very new story. In fact, this modern materialistic worldview is actually has a lot more in common with the ancient mythologies. Because this is the mechanisms might be slightly different, but in the end, the outcomes are the same. We're not back in the Israel when they were writing that first creation story. They weren't surrounded by atheistic materialists, but what they were surrounded by was the ancient Mesopotamian religions, right? Their mythologies and those mythologies, those ancient Mesopotamians, they, they said that all, everything came out of this chaos and evil and violence. Chaos and evil and violence. This is this is primal. This is first. This is primary. And then out of that emerges our world through a series of violent acts by the gods. And then the gods had the had the they had to fight back these forces of chaos and evil from which we'd emerged. But they knew that one day those gods would ultimately fail at their task and the forces of chaos and evil would overwhelm us and wipe us away again. There is no meant to be and there is no going to be. So there's no legitimacy to our sense of ought to be. But scripture gives us that meant to be and going to be. And so lends legitimacy to our sense of ought to be. So every time that we, we fight, we work to make things, set things right, set things as they ought to be, right? We're getting in touch with God's going to be. We're touching God's eternity. Right? So every time you, you fight for, for a marriage to make, it, to, to make a marriage as it ought to be, Every, every time that, that we feed the poor as they ought to be fed, every, every time we reach out to someone and make them feel loved as they ought to feel loved, every time we make things as they ought to be, we're touching God's going to be. Scripture ties heaven and earth now and forever closely together and never lets those things drift too far apart. I, I just want to finish with this uh, illustration which... Um, I was uh, reminded of just just recently. We, my my wife and I a couple of weeks ago we were visiting my uh, mother-in-law Sue, her husband Paul, and and their daughter Shana, and that uh, they live in France. and And so they took us to to see the, the different towns around them. And some of these towns are tiny towns, but they've got these these huge cathedrals. I mean, some of these cathedrals are like bigger than towns themselves, it, it seems like. And so they took us to this town called Bourges, which is actually a, a, a smaller than Temple, but they had this beautiful 
cathedral. Isn't that beautiful? It's stunning. And, and so as we're walking around looking at this cathedral, I was reminded of this, this uh, illustration, which I, I hope will be uh, helpful for you as, as well. And this is, uh, one theologian says this. He says, the image I often use in trying to explain this strange but important idea uh, the, the strange and important idea that, that heaven is made up of the stuff of now, right? Now is woven into the fabric of God's eternity. He, he says, the image I use is that of a stonemason working on part of a great cathedral. Great cathedral. The architect already drew up the plans and passed on instructions to the team of masons as to which stones need carving and in what way. The foreman distributes these tasks among the team. One shapes stones for a particular tower or turret. Another carves delicate patterns. Another works on gargoyles or coat of arms. Another is making statues of saints and martyrs and kings and queens. They're vaguely aware of the fact that others are getting on with their tasks. And they know, of course, that many other departments are busy about quite different tasks as well. When they're finished with their stones and their statues, they hand them over without necessarily knowing very much about where in the eventual building their work will find its home. They may not have seen the complete architect's drawing of the whole building with, with their bit identified in its proper place. They, they may not even live to see the completed building with their work at last where it belongs, but they trust the architect that the work they've done in following the instructions will not be wasted. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. They're not themselves building the cathedral, but they are building for the cathedral. I think this is important. Okay? We're not building this new creation. We're not building this new heaven and new earth, but we're building for it. They're not building the cathedral, but they're building for the cathedral. And when the cathedral is complete, their work will be enhanced, ennobled, will mean so much more than it could ever have meant as they were chiseling it and shaping it down in the stonemason's yard. Every time we do what James Barker is doing in, in, in the Sudan, as, as he feeds people, hungry people in his church, as he gives anti-corruption training to government officials, as, as he uh, works on, on uh, helping people with their marriages. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? Marriages in the Sudan, marriages here probably struggle with the same things. But as they work and as we work in our corners of the world to set things right, to make things as they ought to be, once again, we're touching God's going to be. Let, let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we, we're so grateful for men like James Bach who remind us that heaven and eternity are not that far away. Father, sometimes we've, we've lived as if uh, that day will never come. Father, we pray that you would help us to see heaven and eternity through the, to the lives of people around us and through the work that you've given us to do. Help us to work as the people of God, working hard together, to make things as they ought to be until we see things fully as they're going to be. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're dismissed.